is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 192 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Pepper Ann all about the dangers of writing true crime. But first to last week's question, which was, tell me something fun you've done recently. Lieber Blumenkrantz on uh, Instagram said, I have been playing an old Sherlock Holmes from the 90s. The more I play, the more more gay it gets. Sherlock is the sassiest and I'm loving every minute of it. Author Lena M. Johnson said, I just got back from a spontaneous adventure to San Francisco with a good friend. One of the highlights was touring Alcatraz Island, where we stayed long after sunset. So many story ideas. I absolutely loved uh, Alcatraz when I went there. I've only been once, but it was incredible. Um, And I, uh, yeah, I also got loads and loads of story ideas from it, but I didn't get to stay until sunset. So that is amazing. I can just imagine that the view over the bay would have been uh, indescribably beautiful. So this week's question is, what's your social, what's your social media favourite? What's your favourite social media platform and why? Book recommendation of the week this week is How to Write Short Romance, The Quick and Easy Guide to Writing Insta-Love by Nell Alexander. And I have to thank um, uh, Cassie for this book recommendation. Cassie is the owner of Booklytical Designs and uh, Cassie recommended this book because I am looking at writing a um, novella and I always write long I always write about 85,000 word stories novels so um, I have no idea how to write short so thank you very much for that book recommendation it was a fabulous short read and I highly recommend that you read it too hey so in news and personal updates I am a tiny bit husky uh, this morning <laughs> and that's because yesterday I got to meet my work wife uh, Helen Scheurer who usually lives in New Zealand, uh, but she is over here in the UK at the moment. And I got to meet her for the first time after voice memoing like every day for the last couple of years. Um, We met because she reached out to uh, come on the podcast and we, I don't know, there was just something about her email and we hit it off. So I was like, let's jump on Zoom. I never do this. I literally like never, ever, ever do that. Um, (laughs) I don't like meeting new people that scares me and anyway so we jumped on zoom and we just hit it off and uh we have talked every day since we we just I don't know I just she's amazing and I'm so glad that I got to spend the day with her in real life uh although I'm now deeply depressed (laughs) that she lives in Australia and I live in the UK uh but I suppose what a wonderful thing that technology is that it can uh connect us but anyway my voice is a little bit husky because (laughs) Obviously, I talked all day um, and then some cocktails were shared and (laughs) the talking turned to shouting and over, you know, bars and club music and bad singing and all the rest of it. Anyway, I had a delightful time and uh, so I'm feeling very refreshed today, uh, if a little tired. Lots of exciting things going on in the background, some that I, most that I can't talk about just yet, but I will give lots of updates. One that I can give you an update on is that um, I'm hoping that by the time this goes live, the paperback pre-order for uh, A Game of Romance and Ruin should be live. I've got the covers, I'm loading those up today, I should be ordering the proof today. Uh, So, you know, give it give it a couple of days and and the pre-order should be live for the paperback, which is fantastic because I've got people asking me uh, about the paperback and the hardback as well. Uh, Although that may not be out by the time this goes live because I'm using different systems. If you haven't pre-ordered your copy, now's your time. Uh, This is a second chance romance with um, a long con, a double agent. We've got loads of angst. It's quite different to uh, book one. There is a then and now timeline. It's still Jill point of view. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I love this book. I can't wait to talk more about it. Um, I haven't kind of written a spiel to say on the podcast yet. I think I read the the blurb last week. Uh, But anyway, 
you need to read this book. If you enjoyed book one, you are going to love book two. That's all I'm saying. There is so much more spice. What else? Okay, so I have to finish outlining book three by Sunday night because I need to be writing by Monday morning because uh, we have booked a, a family holiday. Oh my goodness me, I don't think I could be more excited about the fact that we're going on holiday. But we are, and I'm going to take a real legitimate actual break but in order to take that break I have to have hit certain <laughs> word count deadlines and and book dates and deadlines um and so that is why I have to be writing by Monday okay so it is now public news uh, because they are recruiting to the role but I am winding down my hours with the Alliance of Independent Authors so first of all let me say a huge public thank you to Orna and all of the team they are incredible I have had for beautiful, amazing years, learning from incredible sources, incredible people, titans of the industry. And um, I just wouldn't be where I am without them. So I just wanna say a huge, huge thank you to all of them. I'm also not leaving or abandoning them, um, but I am reducing my hours significantly down to just a few every quarter um, so that I can concentrate on writing and publishing. I am going in as sort of the blog director, so I'll be setting strategy uh, rather than doing the sort of creating and freelance writing for them. So they're going to recruit to that different role. So I can leave a link in the show notes uh, for that role. I don't know if it will still be live by the time this goes out, but I will leave a link just in case um, as I know that they are recruiting for that role now. What this means for me is that by October, I will be doing only a handful of hours every quarter um, for Ally um, and therefore hopefully I should be able to increase my rate of, of production with books and with courses and um, non-fiction audio and all of the rest of it so I'm hoping that I will be able to speed up uh, by the, sort of the middle of next year I, I hope <laughs> that I am releasing uh, a lot more frequently and a, and a lot more products so I'm super excited this is a huge huge leap of faith for me um, you know it's when you work freelance it well in this particular role it's, it's very consistent and therefore it's very safe um but yeah, I'm excited to be able to create more books and to create more courses, maybe even do a couple more podcast episodes. We shall see. I'm I'm kind of terrified and excited all at the same time. And I'm also really glad that I still get to do some work with Ally as well, because I fucking love them. Um, and whoever gets that role is going to be very lucky and learn so much. I'm 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 it's kind of bittersweet because I love them so much. Okay, so in terms of what I'm working on, like I mentioned earlier, I am finishing up my outline. I am getting all the pre-order stuff ready for uh, book two. And come Monday, Tuesday, no, come Monday or Wednesday, I will be drafting uh, book three. So that is uh, exciting. I can't quite believe I'm drafting book three. Okay, I think that's it because a lot of the other things that are going on, um, I, I still can't, I, I, I'm too nervous to talk about. So, okay. Let us move on to the Rebel of the Week. The Rebel of the Week this week is Holger. Holger says, I have always wanted to become an artist, but while being a kid, everyone around me told me that being an artist would not earn me a living. Oh, I relate to this. I have been told this as well. And that I should study something proper, like law, engineering, or business. Basically, all my family and their friends were academically trained, and, are, and so I should do the same. I signed up for architecture, as this is an engineering profession, hoping it would give me a bit of leeway to still be creative within its borders. Turned out, that wasn't the case. I hated it, and after studying for one and a half years, I quit. Imagine the reactions of my family. But I really shocked them when I told them I would become a carpenter. Uh, and now that I had signed an apprentice apprenticeship contract, I completed that, studied design, and for 13 years now, I've earned the bulk of my income, which surpassed that of my ancestors based on my drawing and creative skills. Fuck them. <laughs> oh, I love this so much. Like, all power and praise to you. Like, that is incredible. It is a hard, hard thing to earn from your creativity, but it is very, very possible. And I, I love that this rebellion led you uh, to, to do the thing that you love more than anything. And it's a brave thing to go against your uh, family as well. So huge congratulations. 
No new patrons this week, but a big thank you to all of my existing patrons. We just had our found family masterclass, which was fantastic. I loved, I loved the chatter. I loved the books that we read. I loved the class. Um, and the next class is going to be on romance as a secondary plot line. We're just about to choose the books for that. So if you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content like the Slack group, chat group community, the movie nights, the poison and prose writing sessions, Q&A sessions, the masterclasses and more, then you can from as little as $2 a month visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Okay. That is it from me this week. Let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I'm joined by Pepper Ann. Pepper is a seventh generation Texan where she and her family currently reside. She gained experience working alongside private investigators where she learned to find detailed information about stories of interest and eventually expose their cover-ups. Her first book, The Notorious Texas Swindler, is proof of that when she penned the life story about a cousin, a cattle rustler turned conman. She was forced to rewrite the story three times because the individuals involved hacked her computer, but she didn't stop there. Her life and her family's lives were put in it were even put in jeopardy. This only put more resolve into her to continue writing the truth of what happened. Pepper's dream is to bring to light the story behind the stories we've all heard about. She is making sure that we hear all sides to the story so that we can make our own decisions. Hello and welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. Hey, thank you so much for joining. Would you like to tell everyone uh, before we dive into true crime, a little bit about you and your journey and kind of how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. So I started this journey about 12, almost 13 years ago. And the reason I wanted to write, I'd always had an interest in writing, but the reason I wanted to tell the story is because I uncovered a large crime ring here in the state of Texas. And I thought, hey, if nobody else is going to do it, I might as well take it on. So I have experience working with other private investigators, and I use that knowledge along with working with other individuals along the way to get me where I am today. And the journey's been a tough one because, like you said, I've had to rewrite the story several times, and my family's lives have been in danger. But here I am. I didn't know if it would come out or not, but it did. And I'm here. So talk a little bit about um, why you had to rewrite the book three times. Okay, well, so the individuals that I exposed paid a lot of money to keep from going to jail. And they didn't want their names out there. They didn't want anyone to know what they were doing. So laundering money, um, they didn't want their names affiliated with Bob. He's the one that the story is about. He is... He is my cousin. And that's something else. You know, we didn't know that we were related to each other. I had no idea who he was. He didn't know a thing about me. And I heard about him from a family member at a when my grandfather passed away. It was at my grandpa's funeral when I learned about him. So I read up online the newspaper articles about him wrestling cattle, which is that's that's the story. Everybody says, oh, well, he broke out of jail. He did this. He did that. And he did. But what caught my interest was all of the crooked things that these individuals he got tied up with before the jailbreak were involved in. And so when I started writing the story and they found out about it, they hacked into my computer and they <laughs> deleted my work. And on top of that, they loosened the lug nuts on mine and my family members tires threatening us. Oh my goodness me. Were you, Uh were you injured? Was there an accident or were you safe? No, we were safe. Um, we, we were fortunate enough to be able to, one of my family members was driving down the road and tires, both of the tires became very loose and they had to pull over and it was very difficult for him. Once we realized what had happened, we were more, (laughs) Well, we were always on the, we were always watching out for things. You know, one of the individuals that I exposed in the book had made a statement to another family member, not, not directly to me, but to another family member that if any of this comes out, they could easily make a car wreck look like an accident. 
Wowza. So it sounds like they were trying to stand behind their word, but no one was hurt. It just scared us, but yeah, we kept going, you know. So yeah. have they been jailed as a result of what you uncovered? No. No. So they're still out there now, even though the book has been published. Yes. In fact, Bob's ex-wife, she was overseeing all the financial parts of the um, cattle rustling, just all of the cons that they were pulling. And she had charges brought against her and then later was able to have to be careful how I say this. My attorney is going to listen to everything I say. I don't want to say she got out of them, but a few days in jail was nothing in comparison to the years in prison she was supposed to have gotten for what she was charged with. So now she is involved with an adoption agency and she oversees their finances. Right, right. So these individuals are out and about working in children's organizations and their churches and and so are you still receiving threats or are you have they dropped it now that it's out and it is what it is well they've they've dropped it right now let's hope they don't start it back up (laughs) Wow. Um, you know the thing is so i want everybody to understand you know bob might have done a lot of things and he might be a lot of things but one thing i refuse to let him be is the only one who's going to take the rap for all these people and even though the book is done and it's out there, I'm still, I'm still researching because if no one would get these individuals on the charges from before, they're still committing crimes. Maybe somebody will say, Hey, let's haul them in and let's investigate. Let's do what needs to be done to stop them. Okay. And now, because from a completely naive perspective, what is cattle rustling? Okay. I know. I didn't know what it was either. And I should have known because I'm from Texas, right? No, I I knew what it was. I just wasn't familiar with it. So basically it's when someone steals livestock from individuals, you know, um, it could be, it could be cattle. It could be horses, just any type of livestock. It's when they steal them. And, and it still happens today. A lot of people don't realize that, but it does. Yeah, It's just more advanced. Right. Right. Okay. Well, this is fascinating already. So, um, okay. So how did you, or how do you approach the writing of true crime? What are some of the unique challenges and like ethical considerations that come into play with this genre? Okay. Well, what I learned now, keep in mind, this is my first book ever. And to take on a true crime genre is pretty amazing. I think it is, you know, Um, But when I did it, I had to approach it with an open mind because you never know what you're going to uncover. There were so many things that I had read in the court documents. And once I started piecing stuff together, there were a lot of things that individuals had hid where they weren't available to people. And I had to I had to do a lot of digging, a lot of researching and talk to people. So I had to have an open mind about the whole thing. And I had to realize that anything is possible. I could find anything. And I did. I wasn't expecting to find what I found. Um, some of the unique challenges that I faced, I interviewed all kinds of individuals from law enforcement to the criminals who were involved in the crime. Some of them you know, they wanted to be out from under these individuals' thumbs and they wanted to come out and they wanted to say, this is what I know. Now, some of them didn't want their names out there and I respect that, I understand that. So from speaking to them to even the victims, you know, and it it's it was unusual because I wasn't just talking to one type of person. So I had to kind of, change my approach, (laughs) I guess, when I was talking to all these people, you know, and then the ethical consideration that I faced it, it's just the fact that I, you know, something I learned head on was that when I interviewed these individuals, especially the victims, I didn't put their names in the book. And I didn't want to, because out of respect for them, I got to know them 
And they seemed like family to me. I still talk to them today, you know? The DA, one of the DAs in one of the counties where the crimes were committed, I had told him, I said, I don't want to put all of these specific details because I don't feel that it's right that these victims should have to relive this again. Even if they don't read the book, somebody they know may read the book and they may know certain things that these victims don't want out there. So I had to consider their feelings. How could you not? If you're writing about people who've had traumatic experiences, how could you not consider that? So for me, that was that was my first priority, telling the story, but in a respectful way. Well, I just don't even know where to go with this. There's so many things that I want to ask. What what interests me is how you found like the interview process. Did you find any resistance? Like were there people you wanted to talk to and you couldn't? Were there people who who agreed to talk to you but then were resistant? Like did you have to like what did you do to like in terms of the interactions that you had with with all the different types of people in order to get the right information that you were after? So, you know, the only people that were resistant to me were the individuals that I found had maybe perhaps lied, changed their story. They were trying to cover something up. Those were the individuals that I encountered who didn't want a thing to do with me. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter if I was related to Bob. And I was very upfront with people. I felt that it's my nature to to be forthcoming and to say, hey, this is what I'm doing because I don't want to throw anybody off. There's no reason to. The individuals who talked to me, there were a ton of them. They were awesome. Once I started talking to them and I told them, I want your story. I'm not here to question you or argue what happened I'm, I'm not here to do that I'm just here to get all sides of the story because did every you, story has several sides to it right <laughs> of course of course did you have to like relay that I'm taking it you transcribed like you recorded and transcribed like did you have to send back and you know say look these are the words that I've got this is how I slightly tweaked it do you approve of this did you did you have to do that with them as well in some instances I did I I felt that it was appropriate. Now, when I interviewed people, I always had them sign a consent form. Mm. So that way I was protected. And I have the best legal team, literary team, um, literary attorneys watching me. So in some instances I did, not very often, you know, I would reach out and say, what are your thoughts on this? Mm. But People were amazing with me. I just want to say that up front. I was nervous when I first started this. Once I got in there, I realized I can handle this. I did. And what about your cousin? Are you still talking? Like, are they okay with the fact that you've published this book? Or Yes, Bob is very happy that my book is out. We're not exactly on the happiest terms right now. So I've been on his visiting list for 12, almost 13 years. And there's an individual who he has on his list that I don't want affiliated with him. He knows the individuals who I exposed. And I wanted Bob to remove this individual from his list and he refused to do it. So I had my name (laughs) removed from his visiting list. Um, he supports everything I do. Mm. I'm his power of attorney. I'm the one that has the rights to the story. I, you know, I, I had to make a decision to protect my loved ones and I didn't want these individuals exposed to them. So so let's right talk now about... we're not on talking terms, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let's go into that and talk about the legal ramifications. So you've and you'll have to forgive me because I, you know, I don't I haven't ever even really read true crime, let alone. I mean, my my partner, that's all they watch. <laughs> all they all they love. They absolutely love true crime. Um, 
but so you mentioned having power of attorney and therefore you have the right to the story. So talk to me about what that means, because obviously he's still alive. And usually when people are alive and they're written about in books, you have to have, um, you know, lots of comprehensive contracts and legal documents and and so on and so forth. So um, what are the legal ramifications? What are the ramifications of the fact that it's a crime that's, um, you know, not necessarily been uh, convicted or, or whatever, I don't know, uh, but with the people who are still out and about. Yeah. So talk to me, talk to me about that. You've mentioned that you've got a legal team. Okay. So whenever you're writing about a true crime, or if you're, you're putting someone's names down um, for everyone to read, you, you, you really need to have a literary attorney to watch you because you could you could be sued if you write something that's incorrect, you know, slam something is slanderish. Um, as long as it's public information, which everything I wrote was, and if it was inter and if I got information from interviews, people's perspectives, as long as I state that in the book, I'm fine. Um, when I first started this, like I said, I reached out to Bob. I said, hey, I want to write the story. So I had my attorney send legal paperwork to him. It was contract. So he was giving me permission to write about his life story, not the crimes, because those crimes, that's public information, but that I could write information about his life. And so the paperwork that he signed, he gave me all kinds of permission, anything having to do with it, I have permission to to say. Um, and I can say it freely. <laughs> um, I could call him a jackass if I want. He won't get mad, even though I do, regardless, doesn't matter. So the legal, the legal paperwork he signed, it it protects me and it protects him too. Okay. Okay. And so is that the case for anyone if they if they want to write, a, a, you know, about a crime, a crimes of public information? So I'm guessing anyone can write about those. If, if, it, if it's public information, they can. If you're writing about a specific individual and you're wanting to write about their their life story, then you you have to get with an attorney and have them draw up a contract so that you can have the life rights to yeah. that story. And just for listeners, I am just, because <laughs> I've got these horrible, uh, I've got, my mind is going in all different directions. Just for clarity, neither of us are lawyers. We are not giving you legal advice. If you were to write a true crime story or about somebody who is alive, you must must seek legal advice, independent legal advice, um, before you take action and before you um, publish anything. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to say is that you should seek advice in your country. Uh, and also, the if you are writing about something from a different country, you need to seek legal advice in that country as well. Because um, as you're talking, I, I can't honestly say whether or not the British legal system would have the same perspective on writing about crimes because I don't know I I, I think uh, I, we might not have the same rights here to, to do that so definitely listeners if you're going to write a true crime please go and check with a lawyer in your country um uh yes so okay um fantastic right um, and I'm guessing that the the sort of consent forms that your interviewees signed, were they drawn up by you? Were they drawn up by a lawyer? Are they very basic? Do they, you know, what what what, what kind of stuff goes into your consent forms? The consent forms were actually drawn up by my attorney. They are basic. They are they basically state that anything that I'm told in an interview that I have the rights to that. Usually when I'm interviewing someone, I, I record the conversation for many reasons. One, so I can make sure that I have all the information correct because when I'm speaking with someone, I may not remember something. There may be just one small detail that I have to go back and check. And then I also have it for legal reasons, if I ever need it, you know, if my attorney ever needs it for any reason, I've got that. But I'm the only one that listens to that recording. So yeah. it's all safe. Can you give um, some tips 
for researching or fact checking when writing about true crime? Absolutely. So I researched through the FOIA records, which in the U.S. is through the FBI. So anything that that might be public information, they would have a record of that. So um, that's the first thing that I would do. And something I've learned is that it take it could take them up to a year to get the information to you. So if you're wanting to write a true crime, I would reach out and request those records because while you're doing other research and working on your story, you want to give yourself time to be able to get those records. Um, so that's that's one that's that's one resource that I use. And I also, like I said, I was Bob's power of attorney. So for me, that gave me access to any records tied to him, any of his bank records, any anything related to him. So if you're writing, I, I say this because if you're writing about a family member and not many people are, <laughs> go in and, and ask for whatever you can. If you're writing about an individual somebody you don't know or someone maybe you do, you can use court records. You can go through the interview process with the individuals. I also reached out to law enforcement and they were huge in helping me with this. I had statements from the SWAT team, from sheriff's departments, Texas Rangers. So I had all this information at my fingertips. These people are amazing. And if they know what you're doing, they'll work with you. They'll talk to you. But your approach with them has to be, you just have to be honest with them. And I also found that, you know, the the witness statements helped me as well. I befriended a lot of the clerks in the district clerk's office. Now, I don't know how it is you know, in, in every country, because everything is different, of course, with the court system. But if you find someone, a department that has records, if you can get in with these individuals, explain what you need, people are willing to work with you. Yeah, that's amazing. I don't think our system is as open as yours. <laughs> like, I'm just thinking about how, because uh, how we don't have like, we don't have rangers or anything. We just have the police force here. And so, um, yeah, we don't have sheriffs. We don't have we don't have anything like we don't have a DA. We don't have anything like that. We just have the police and then the like the court system. Um, and so everything's quite a lot more closed down. So I think I, I suspect I mean, I don't I don't know because I haven't tried to do it. But I suspect that if you were uh, in Britain and trying to write true crime, you would probably find it harder unless you're like an ex copper or something. And then it might be all right. Um, I wanted to ask something. How so? How long did this process take you? You mentioned that some things can take a year to get from from the FBI. We do have freedom of information requests. That was the one thing that sounded similar, like the FBI request. We can do a freedom freedom of information request, but again, they can take forever to get back to you. Well, FOIA is Freedom of Information ah, Act, so oh, it okay. is, it's. I'm sure it's very similar, if not the same thing. Um, <clears throat> You know, the interview process, that that didn't take long at all. Most people are willing to schedule those, um, even with law enforcement. Um, if you call and you're trying to get records, that process can take anywhere from, you know, a month to three months. It depends on how backed up they are. Uh, getting the, uh, the FOIA records, <laughs> and this and the um and, and did you call it the freedom of information uh what, what did you call it the yeah it's freedom of, if, yeah freedom of information act maybe i'm not sure freedom of okay. information okay. yeah foi i think we call it foi okay so that would take the longest and i didn't know that i they were wonderful with me by the way at the agency the fbi agency um it can take up to two years sometimes depending on how backed up they are. So if you're wanting to write true crime, I would start digging and researching because it's going to take you some time to get all those records. Yeah, yeah, it's so and, and, you know, while you're waiting to get all of this information, you can go out and you can interview people and get their 
thoughts on it. You know, one of the things I did was I also went out to some of the places where things in the story happened. I just kind of, I took pictures, I got a feel for it. You know, what was the town like, you know? There are things that you can do while you're waiting for all these records, you know, because it's just, it's it's a long process, but it's it's so worth it, you know? What are some common misconceptions about true crime and how do you like address that in your writing? Well, one of the most common misconceptions that I I didn't realize is that you can you you don't always get the whole story from the transcripts because you know how sometimes they can, you know, either the defense attorney or the prosecutor, they can withhold evidence. I mean, they they can throw it out of court. And so you don't have that information. All you have is what they allow in court. So if the judge throws it out, you may not have the whole story. You may not have everything that they want the jury to hear. In that case, that's where you have to dig, you have to search, you have to talk to people and see if you can piece the rest of it together. That's where those interviews come in handy that's you have you you can't get the whole story from just one from one individual or from one document it takes a lot of digging and researching to get the story to piece it together so let's talk about story because fiction and even non-fiction in a certain extent follows, you know, story structures and it has an arc. Characters, you know, often start flawed in fiction and then they become the heroes that they need to be at the end of the story. So what does true crime look like? What kind of story structure does it follow? And how can you weave something that is facts and opinions and, you know, a case into what is a, a compelling narrative? Well, what I learned when I'm writing true crime, and again, this is my first one, so <laughs> I had to kind of figure it out as I as I was going. What was important that I noticed is that you have to include the details as you see them. In other words, if if something happened in a scene, you know, you have to go into it in detail. You have to be able to explain it. Just as it, it states in in those documents, um, if it's if it's fiction, you can go in any direction you want. But if it's a factual, if it's something factual, and and you want to put it in there, you have to just you have to just you just have to you have to take the story. And you just have to write it as you see it. If that makes sense, you you go with what everyone says and then you just combine it all. Okay, so what what was the arc that you used? Like, where is the start? It's the start of the book, like there is a crime and the end of the book is the resolution of that crime and then sort of the verdict and the 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 uh, conviction or like how does the how does that work in a true crime? Yes. So what I did, let me just explain what I did in my process. And everyone is different. So in in mine, I started with the most one of the most exciting parts um, of the story. That's what I did. Now, when I was speaking with individuals, different people, everyone has their own style of how they want to how how they think you should write. What I did was I found the most exciting thing in the story and then I put it in the beginning because I wanted to get the readers engaged and then once I did that I had my hook and once I did that then I continued on then I went back to the beginning and then I laid out all the facts um I think if you're writing true crime you know the thing is there's a lot of facts and people want facts but they also want something exciting they don't want to just they don't want something boring so you have to have a hook to pull it in. And that's what I did. That's for me, that's what works. I know when someone's writing fiction, you can write it however you want. I mean, you can put anything in the beginning, but but true crime, any anything that's nonfiction, you got you gotta find something that hooks people and then go from there. 
So what's the the resolution in a true crime? Is it because like in a story you open with a with a question in essence? And I know you're saying you opened with a hook. So like what is the conclusion to that? So for me, like it would be like the hero has a problem and the conclusion to the book is the resolution of that problem. Either they fix it or they don't. And that's kind of like the ending. So is that the same in crime? So you opened with a hook, but like is the resolution um the the conviction or the 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 not conviction as is the you know controversial way for it so like how does that what does that look like so for me what i did was i wanted to i wanted to put the problem out there and then at the end i wanted to show that it's not quite solved there are other problems preventing this from all coming to a close um so the 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 answer to your question is put it out there and then see what the way that it ends, see if there's a possibility. I'm I'm setting it up for possibly another book. That's what Ah, I'm doing. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I know, but that's fantastic to know because um, I expected true crime to be like standalone. So each book is like open and shut sort of case. And um, of course, in fiction, series are what sell and how, you know, indie authors make their money. We all make our money from series, whether that's interconnected standalones or like a, you know, more um, purist kind of traditional series. Um, so, yeah, that's really interesting to know that um, you can do like series in true crime as well. Well, I tell you now, now a lot of the true crime is a standalone, but with mine, because there are so many people who are still out and about I have the option to do a second book and I'm hoping someday that I can. Um, most true crimes, it depends on the story. Some of them, if it's, if it's a case that's been solved, it's just a standalone and other people will come in and they'll write another version, a different version of the crime. But for some crimes that are not necessarily solved, or if there's some questions, there's some things at the end that maybe, you know, don't seem quite right. You can set it up where you can prepare for another another story, another book to it. So are you going to write more true crime? Will you write about cases that are like sort of open and shut or will you continue to write about live stories, do you think? I'm just being lazy asking this. (laughs) No, that's okay. No, I am going to write another true crime. I'm not sure what the case is yet. I have a couple on the table, but it has to be something that catches my interest, something that I'm passionate about. It has to be something that angers me so much that I want the answer or I at least want to get the news out there in some way, you know? I love that. Okay. What, what are some, you know, sort of tips or tricks for making, um, the, the people or the characters, if you like, in the, in the, um, store in the, I want to keep wanting to say story in your true crime, um, how do you make it like compelling, engaging with for readers without sort of exploiting the content matter or sensationalizing everything? Well, what I did, so whenever I am talking about a scene in the book, I I try to build up to the why and the how. You know, why is the criminal committing the crime? What are they doing? How are they doing it? So the suspense in the story, it it, it builds up the tension. I don't, I, I feel that it's important, like I said, to protect the witnesses and, and other people, you know, victims, people who've stepped forward to give me their story. So I think just by putting the facts out there, it keeps you from sensationalizing on, on it. In fact, I'll tell you, I had an individual who... He was one of the victims. He stepped forward and he wanted to talk to me. And once he did, he knew who I was. He he said, you know, you're you're actually you're a real nice lady. And he knew that my family wasn't in any way tied to what Bob had done, you know, and he we we were able to to talk on a whole other level. And he opened up to me and he said he asked me this question. He said, why do you want to write about somebody who? committed all these crimes why you know 
are you going to sensationalize them? And I said, no, I'm not. The reason I'm doing this, I want to get the facts out there is because I want people to be aware of the other individuals. And that's what kept me from, that's what kept it from being sensationalized. That's what kept it from making him sound like some big, great outlaw. Some people view him that way. And that's not what I, that's not what I wanted people to take from my story. Let's dig into that more and talk about um, some of the emotion. Like, how do you, when you aren't the victim yourself, and I suppose this is a little bit similar in terms of like authors creating characters, but the, but characters aren't real. So I can just make up what somebody felt. Um, How, how can you convey the emotions and the motivations of the individuals involved effectively um, without like causing upset or offense? Like, how did you tackle that or how did you approach it? Well, a lot of the people that I spoke with, you can get a feel for what they had gone through. You, when you're interviewing someone, you can, I've, I've had people say, and, and they told me this, and I'm I'm kind of kind of conflicted on it. If someone gets emotional in the middle of an interview, my first instinct is to stop and let them get regain themselves. And I've had people say, "No, you want to let them go on because you want to pull that emotion out." The problem with that is sometimes people want a a space to be able to be comfortable in. And not everybody needs to know that. That's not public information. I don't feel that it is. If someone is comfortable enough with you to to break down and say things, that's that should be a private moment. When I was writing about some of the individuals, and there were a few individuals who had passed, what I did if I was trying to relay their emotions on to the page, I just kind of you know, you you can tell by the way that the scene played out. If something happened, you can kind of gather those emotions from the way people react. And that's that's how I would base someone in their actions and their emotions. That's that's how I would relay it on, on the page. Did you ever get any like comeback? I know you mentioned that you did go back and sort of check some of the facts with people about what they'd said, but did you ever get any comeback on the emotions or was everybody, did everybody kind of feel that, because I think maybe you undervalue that because that's a real skill. Not everybody can read that in, in um, like in a situation, some people are like naturally talented at kind of understanding other people's emotions. Like I, like I'm not necessarily like I'm dead on the inside. So like, <laughs> I always joke about it, but it's actually true. I only have two emotions, excitement or rage, that's it. Otherwise, I'm just like neutral the whole time. Um, So, yeah, like that really interests me, like how you kind of read that and what things you picked up on in order to to then convey that onto the page. I find that deeply um, interesting. I haven't really asked you an additional question, but... um, Okay, let, let, let me let me ask another question. Well, I, I do want to say something. And thank yeah. you for the compliment. I do want to say this. Um, before I took this on, I made sure that I watched people in the fields that I, I knew I would be interviewing individuals at, law enforcement, you know, um, DAs, this, that, and the other. I also worked um, alongside private investigators before I took this project on. And so I think that also helped me with being able to read people. Mm. You know, I think that if you, if it's something you're interested in, if you can work alongside other individuals to learn how to read people, how to, how to do things like that, it helps you with your writing. It's just Mm. another skill that you probably need. (laughs) Well, we all need if we're writing, right? I mean, it's not a bad thing. Do you think you'll ever, do you think you'd ever go and be a private investigator? It sounds like you basically are one. <laughs> I wanted to be a bounty hunter. Oh, wow. I wanted to be a bounty hunter. Oh my God. Yes. Yes. That's so cool. I don't think that I would get back into working with bounty, uh, with, with private investigators. I was not licensed. I do want to say that I did it on my own terms. So I think writing true crime and exposing the stories, I think that's about as far as I'll go with it. Now, no, if no I bounty. ever, 
no bounty hunting or no my god I'd love to do it it's so dangerous but you know have a family if if the opportunity ever came up I'd be the first one to raise my hand put me out there let's do this why don't you do it life's too short YOLO (laughs) (laughs) you know what I might I know you never know you know you don't know what tomorrow brings right (laughs) Uh, honestly like over the last year I've had like a real transition into like writing the stuff that really brings me joy and it's just I'm so much happier like you know we only get one shot at this and you just have to take the balls by the horns or whatever you know and and do the thing that you really want to do because you literally could walk out tomorrow and get hit by a bus or whatever and and then and then you never did that thing like I don't want to die I would rather regret the things that I've done than the things that I haven't done you know I want to get I want to I want to be exhausted on my deathbed because I just literally burned the candle at every end and in the middle and did all of the things and yeah like if that's really what you want to do you should go and do it but I'm going to stop preaching (laughs) that you know what I couldn't agree with you more I I I do want to say this and I know it's off record but I do want to say this I've had a lot of people who have said to me, um, well, they got one guy. Isn't that enough? Why do you have to keep going? And it was so livid when I heard that. People act like you're supposed to walk on eggshells in life and you have to get out there. If it's something you want to do so bad, you've got to get out there and live life. And I feel like I have with this book. Yeah, I've done done things. People are like, you need to stop. You're going to get hurt. And I think, oh my God, they don't know. Or none of us are getting out of this alive. Yeah, you know? I know. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, but isn't that the truth? We literally aren't getting out of this alive. So you might as well do the thing, like eat the fucking ice cream, like, you know, go to the park with the kid or or book the fucking holiday because, you know, and I'm not suggesting anybody should get into debt or, you know, whatever, but like, life is actually about joy and we have got to rebel against these bloody expectations that are placed upon us to restrict us or quiet quiet us or you know make us toe the line because no creativity ever came from um towing the line at the end of the day like i really have a bit of a bugbear about these institutions because i think in if you get too institutionalized, you stop being able to think for yourself, like that kind of institutionalism breeds obedience. And I'm just ranting now, but, um, and obedience stops creativity. You know, we stop being able to think for ourselves. And I honestly, genuinely from the bottom of my heart, believe that creativity is the thing that's going to save humanity because without creativity, we don't have inventors. We don't have entrepreneurs. We don't have people trying to push the boundaries and, you know, find a um, a, a stop for uh, global warming or for crime or for, you know, diseases. So yeah, but literally I'm like, I'm going off. So I'm going to climb off the soapbox right now. But yeah, basically, in conclusion, everybody rebel and go and do what brings you joy as long as you are safe and not hurting other people. Just like, keep in mind, well-behaved women rarely make history. I don't know Amen. who said that. I know I've heard it, but it's so true. Was it? You know? Was it Eleanor Roosevelt? I feel like, my, I don't know. I will Google I it. Know. I will Google I, it and I will find yeah. out. Okay. <laughs> I want to give credit where it's due, but it's such a true statement. You it know, really, men really and is. women, well-behaved people just don't make history. Not like, you know, not like the ones who rebel against it. Come on, get out I, there and live. I absolutely agree. Um. Okay. So my last kind of main question is, How important is it for an author to establish their credibility and expertise when writing about true crime? And and how can you do that? I think it's very important for an author to show their credibility and their expertise. You know, people won't speak to you unless you you have some type of backing, meaning, you you know, you have you have you can't be shady. You know, you have to be on the same page as you, you want to you want to approach individuals, meaning that you want to get information from them and you have to be credible to these people because you wouldn't talk to someone if you didn't trust them, if you didn't feel comfortable. I mean, would you? Nobody would, you know. So um, like I said, to show to show your experience, your expertise, and your credibility, you get in there with people and 
if if you have an interest in writing true crime, I always recommend going to, you know, the police department, your local police department, asking them if you can sit in and observe maybe 911 calls, get a bird's eye view, you know, um, get better acquainted with individuals in law enforcement. People are always open to that. You'd be surprised. Um, this is going to sound a little morbid, but if you're writing, if you're writing something, even in fiction, if you're wanting to write about a morgue scene, see if you can go to a funeral home and talk to someone and say, hey, can I kind of observe a little? Can I ask you some questions? You know, if you go into your writing project and you can say, I've done this, I know how to approach this, people are more willing to talk to you and listen to you. And you'd be surprised at the, the information you get from them. Um, I did Google it and it's been attributed to three people, <laughs> unhelpfully. So, really? Yeah, Eleanor Roosevelt, <laughs> Marilyn Monroe, and then um, Pulitzer Prize winning American history specialist, um, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. So I don't I don't know without going into more detail who which one of them actually said it, but it's been attributed to all three of them. I have a feeling it's Laurel, um, but I had heard it. I had heard it quoted to Eleanor Roosevelt. So I'm not entirely sure. I'm sure somebody listening is going to tell is going to message in. Please do and correct correct us if, if it's not one of those three or or clarify which one it is. But Okay, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. Oh boy, are you really ready for this? This is fun. <laughs> I'll tell you all about it. So when I first took on this project, uh, Bob was uh, in a in a prison located about two and a half hours from me. So I would go and I'd interview it on most weekends. Well, TDC, that's Texas Department of Corrections, that's who he, that's who our prison system is through here in Texas. They had moved him to a unit that was well over six hours away from me. And it kept me from being able to do our interviews, you know, and, and to complete the story. So we had requested for a hardship transfer. And what that is, it's when you can, if a family member requests that and inmate be moved closer to them. There are a few things in mind. They cannot be in administrative segregation. And what that is, is you have to be in population. Administrative segregation is when an individual is locked up 23 to 24 hours a day, which Bob was because of his crimes. He had escaped jail twice. So he was in administrative segregation. And you also have to be an immediate family member. I wasn't. I'm a cousin, but I'm the only one that he had. So we filed for a hardship transfer. Within about a week, I was told no. I went above the people that told me no to the board members of TDC, and I wrote a letter to each and every one of them. And I said, here's what I want. They asked me to come to an open public board meeting held in Austin, Texas. And they even requested that the director of TDC in one district of Texas come to the meeting. I met and spoke with all of them. Within three weeks, the request was approved and Bob was moved closer to me. I was informed it was the first transfer of that type to be approved in over a decade. Oh. It was also around the holidays. So I thought if I can do that, let's see what else I can pull out. I contacted a local call-in radio show for individuals that are located in and around Huntsville, which is near Houston, Texas, and they have a radio station. And so family members can call in all over the world. This uh, radio station is, it's a local station, but they broadcast over the internet as well. So it's worldwide. Um, I had contacted the individual who founded the station and I said, I want to co-host the show with you on Christmas day. So Bob could hear mine and other family members' voices on the radio. I'd never been on the radio. I didn't know a damn thing about it, but I figured I'd figure it out once I get in there. They had to request a time slot to be available on Christmas day. Once they did, it was approved and I got to co-host the show. 
wow that's amazing (laughs) maybe a podcasting career in your future then true crime podcast hey (laughs) I don't know about that (laughs) let let me write that's where I'm stuck that's where I enjoy being (laughs) amazing well tell everyone where they can find out more about you your books and anything else that you'd like to add you can find more about me uh, and my book at my website. It's uh, pepperannauthor.com and Anne has an E at the end of it. You can also enter in the title of my book, The Notorious Texas Swindler, and it's available anywhere online where most books are sold worldwide. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Pepper Ann, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Megan Smith, and we are talking all about copy, copywriting, advertising copy for authors, and how you can integrate that into um, your business and your marketing. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.